0: This episode of the Telegram is supported by Squarespace, the all in one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. And as a Telegram podcast listener, you will receive 10% off your first purchase by using the offer code TELEGRAPH. Welcome to the Telegram. I'm Tim Stanley. Power corrupts, and it has corrupted Vladimir Putin absolutely. As the crisis in Ukraine continues, we examine the character behind the man responsible. A professor of psychology tells us that Putin suffers from a debilitating need for power, and the Telegraph's experts on Defence and Westminster tell us what the West can do to control him. All of which raises the question, is Britain really part of that effort, or have we cut and run from our international responsibilities? I'm joined in the studio by the telegraphs Benedict Brogan and Con Coughlin, and down the phone by Professor Ian H. Robertson. We all know that power eventually corrodes a leader's reason. From Caligula turning Rome into a giant brothel, to Idi Amin declaring himself King of Scotland, it detaches men from reality and threatens the liberty of the rest of us. But how exactly does this happen, and what do we do about it when it does? In the first part of this podcast, we're going to talk about the phenomenon of power madness. Ian H. Robertson, a professor of psychology at Trinity College Dublin and author of The Winner Effect, How Power Affects Your Brain, says this really does exist, and that Putin shows the sign of having power madness. I spoke with him earlier and began by asking him to define what the psychologist David McClellan calls the need for power.
1: The need for power is one of three fundamental largely unconscious motivations that people have to different degrees. Uh, The the other two are the need for affiliation, that is wanting to be liked and approved of by other people. The other is for achievement, that is to achieve significant goals in the world and to to have a a legacy, if you like, if you're a politician. And the third one is the, the drive to control what other people want, need or fear. And these are to a considerable extent independent and people have them to a certain degree. Any leader, particularly a world leader, needs to have a certain need for power. Otherwise, they become too stressed by the demands of leadership because power effects on the brain include that of being an antidepressant and an anti-anxiety drug.
0: Right. So so could you be a leader who doesn't have the need for power and therefore is a bad leader?
1: Um, Absolutely. And um, I'm sure many people can think of bosses they have had in the past who have, uh, who, who have been bad bosses because they're insufficiently assertive or insufficiently um, desirous of, of imposing themselves in a possibly in a benign way, but, but really taking control of an organization. We need leadership requires that people have a certain appetite for power and enjoy power to some extent, because if they don't, they have a tendency to become very stressed or to lock themselves away or to end up being indecisive.
0: So we mustn't necessarily think of this desire for power as a bad thing. It can actually be a quality that is very helpful in politics.
1: Well, my view is that the evolution of the human species, which was that of a group, our survival and success has been because we've collaborated as groups, and groups require leaders. And um, so there's been an evolutionary pressure to develop people who have an appetite to be leaders and and to engage in the kind of dominance behaviors that are required of leaders. But what happens, I, I, I am hypothesizing over evolution, is quite often you found that leaders started to show strange behaviors because of that power, um, sometimes made bad decisions, sometimes became cruel and, and uh, uh, narcissistic in their behavior. And my view would be that democracy, the artifacts of democracy were developed evolved as part of civilization to curb these effects on leaders and that includes um, free press, independent judiciary elections. These were clever inventions of, of, the, of human civilization to curb the biological effects of power on leaders.
0: Right so in our, in our raw natural state, if we hadn't developed these institutions, we would we would be inclined to not only be governed by strong people but also to sort of allow that to happen. That's within our nature to expect people to want to dominate us.
1: Yes, to different degrees in different cultures. Uh, that there are maybe some primitive tribes where that is a, where the, the, the hierarchies are less steep or less strong. So there are different manifestations of this. But generally speaking, uh, in, in almost all mammals, um, human and infrahuman, you have this tendency to form uh, dominance hierarchies or status hierarchies, and that has profound effects. The nature of these hierarchies actually has profound effects on the biology and the brains of the of the people do, and the or the animals depending on where they stand on that hierarchy
0: okay, so in the modern politician, uh, if there's someone who is uh, getting by on the thrill of power there's someone who needs it there's someone therefore who is constantly enveloped by it, there must come a point where that's actually psychologically unhealthy for them
1: yes and um I'm not saying there, is no, there are no politicians who don't end up, who who, who, are, who, are, um, who avoid falling into that trap. So if someone like Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, seems to have been someone who could, he had three terms in office, um, and he didn't, see, he seemed to be able to maintain reasonable judgment and reasonable emotion, emotional balance. He didn't seem to succumb to the uh, effects of, of, of considerable power. Um, uh, whereas others, even with shorter periods in power, seem to have done. And uh, I just point here to the work of Lord David Owen, the former uh, U.K. foreign secretary, who um, has written a book and uh, published an article about the hubris syndrome, which would be his account of which world leaders he feels meet this symptom list for people who have succumbed to this uh, the pathological, the negative effects of extreme power.
0: And do you think that has happened in the case of Vladimir Putin, who's now been in charge in Russia for <clears throat> ooh, what I'm going to say, fifteen or sixteen years?
1: Yes, I mean I, either as prime minister or president. So um, I, I do think that um, he really does qualify for having some of the, the symptoms of the, the hubris syndrome. One of the <clears throat> key features he, he um, shows would be contempt for people in his cabinet, but also contempt for other world leaders. Um, He seems to be very dismissive of even Barack Obama and and, and David Cameron. He seems to have a, uh, and and contempt would be one of the features uh, of the hubris syndrome, because um, what happens when you're in power, you hold extreme power for a long time. You start to develop a, a very narcissistic view of the world and uh, be a very egocentric view of the world, and you you um, you, you also believe yourself to be, the, the risk is you believe yourself to be infallible. You you develop an exe- excessive confidence in your own judgment. If I can just say as a, a side line here, I spoke a few years ago to a very senior advisor to Tony Blair at the time when Tony Blair was still in power. and. Um, he was very defend defensive of tony blair who, whom i was very critical of and he he wouldn't allow any he wouldn't accept what i was saying about him except at one point his brow furrowed and he said well yeah what it concerns me is his, his certainty his sense of certainty he's yeah. always certain now that was something that came that developed very much because the hubris syndrome would be a personality change that's caused by the power not necessarily something that's pre-existing, although in Vladimir Putin's case, Putin's case the, the, the Soviet Union and Russia have a traditionally very, very steep power hierarchy and a very high acceptance that people in power can exercise it capriciously. And there's even a kind of valuing of, of people behaving in Tsar-like ways. So there's a cultural fostering of that kind of behavior. And um, so he, he probably had that propensity and that orientation already. But it's In my view, um, his his contempt for people, many people, um, Angela Merkel, apparently many years ago at a a meeting, a state meeting, she upbraided him about the contempt with with which he he spoke about his his own cabinet, but in fact, Tony Blair and and his uh, senior aides like um, uh, Jonathan Powell, uh, they also, if you read their text, they were also quite contemptuous of their cabinet, you know. <laughs> but but Tony, um, so but
0: Tony Blair did eventually go. I mean, in the case of Russia, yeah. there's, you say, yeah. there's a valuing of power and abusing power, but yeah. there's also a valuing of longevity. Uh, in the Soviet Union became a gerontocracy towards the end, people like Brezhnev yes. ran the country yes. into their 80s. Um, so although Tony Blair may have had those sorts of tendencies, he did step down. I mean, Margaret Thatcher eventually stepped down. They, of course, were pushed. But in Putin, uh, there's a sense of of a belief that without him, Russia would be nothing, that he has become the country, and that without Putin, there is no Russia.
1: Absolutely. So so, uh, two things there. The only constraints that really, or or one of the two main constraints on these biological effects of power on the brain are external governance constraints, like your MPs chiseling you out of office, which happened both Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair they, they I mean they, they didn't step down they were it was huge pressure their own their own MPs got rid of them um, but one of the other features of the hubris syndrome one of the other features of the effects of power in the brain is uh the, there is the narcissism and the belief that you are indispensable but there's a, also a the, the parts of the brain responsible for self-awareness and self-criticism they actually get down regulated Biologically, by the effects of power. Right. So your capacity to be even aware of your own um, limitations or errors becomes diminished. And there is, of course, the Louis the Fourteenth, I think it was, of France, après moi, après moi le déluge. That 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 is a and De Gaulle showed in France showed that as well. This the longer you are in office, the more you genuinely believe that everything will fall apart if you leave. And that means because. So that means there's even a kind of, you, you might even be deluded into thinking there's a moral argument for why you should continue to do all sorts of things to stay in office because your country needs you and your country will fall apart without you.
0: In the rest of this program, we're going to be discussing how you deal uh, with people who are power mad. It might be helpful if you could close with a thought about that. Uh, how does one stand up to this kind of, psych- a person with this kind of psychological profile?
1: it's exceptionally difficult because the people below him are fearful of giving the feedback because um, such is the power that very likely they will suffer for for, for trying to constrain it so it has to come from either higher levels or sideways levels so consequences and constraints um, uh, are are really the only way so so um, I mean with Hitler, for instance, he wanted to to have a scorched earth policy in Germany and destroy everything because he felt the German people did not deserve to live, having failed him so much. And it was only Albert Speer refused to carry out his orders to destroy the the country. So with someone like Vladimir Putin, the only way would be, I think, would be external constraints in the forms of Uh, sanctions of various kinds, not necessarily economic sanctions, but the kind of thing like the uh, G8, you know, maybe not taking place, or at least the preparations uh, not taking place, because he is some one of the other features of power is an extreme uh, egotism, narcissism. And so there's a great need to, to, to feed off the, um, the admiration and to, and to believe that you are admired and feared by the rest of the world. So practical constraints and the absence of proper governance constraints. We have a weak uh, free press in Russia, we have a weak judiciary, and we have elections that, you know, maybe don't meet those of Western standards. And so the internal Russian constraints in him are, 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 are poor, and which allows his power to, to dominate. Uh, and develop as much as it has. And so it's, it has to be international constraints of some kind uh, to try and temper
0: this. Ian Robinson, thank you very much. This episode of the Telegram is supported by Squarespace, the all in one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools, as well as a 100-strong Dublin, New York, and Oregon-based customer support team, on hand 24-7. And as a Telegram podcast listener, you'll receive 10% off your first purchase by using the offer code TELEGRAPH. That was Professor Ian Robertson, leading us nicely into our next question. If we do accept that Vladimir Putin is power-hungry, how do we deal with him? To discuss this, I'm now joined by Benedict Brogan and Con Coughlin. Con, Professor Robertson says that we can't rely on internal factors to bring Putin down, and the only thing that he'll understand in the long term is external force. Do you agree with this analysis?
2: Well, I think I do. I think one of the really interesting things about this uh, recent crisis is that we've, seen, we've really seen what Putin's like. Um, and I was particularly taken by the press conference he gave earlier this week to a select group of Russian journalists where he told a bare-faced lie without even blinking. Um, He said, categorically, there are no Russian troops in the Crimea. And every journalist, including the Daily Telegraph journalists who are in the Crimea, have confirmed there's a very significant Russian force that's been flown in to the Crimea. So, we are dealing with somebody who's an habitual liar, which I suppose, given his background in the KGB, um, is, 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 is something that you would expect of somebody with his training... But it does certainly affect the way we respond to him um, because you're not dealing with a normal world leader who plays by the rules. You are playing with somebody who will try to get his own way at all costs. And the only way to stop that from happening is to to apply quite significant pressure to bring him to heel.
0: Right, so we have to play as tough as he's playing, in other words. If not tougher. If not tougher. Um, Ben, Benedict Brogan, are we in a position to do that?
3: Uh, We're certainly not. Militarily, we're nowhere, and we certainly can't contemplate any kind of military challenge that some people imagine that sort of thinks back to the days of the Cold War. But we do have other ways of confronting Vladimir Putin and Moscow. Those are largely economic. The fact is that uh, Russia's banks rely hugely on the international capital markets to keep afloat. They are very shaky. Uh, Russian businesses and investors rely enormously on their ability to make full use of, for example, the City of London to access international capital. There are all kinds of ways in which if the British government and certainly the European Union and the international community more widely uh, could challenge Moscow Economically and hit them where it hurts. I think the premise uh, of the question is what troubles me slightly in the sense that uh, while it is certainly the case that people want to address the issue of Russian involvement in Crimea, um, it is not at all clear, it does not follow in my book, that the West uh, and the international community want to get rid of Vladimir Putin. I think we should recall that Vladimir Putin is in place in part with the tacit agreement of the international powers, which uh, we're very grateful to see a strong man emerge from the chaos uh, that the former Soviet Union descended into in the 1990s. Uh, and they look at this vast country with all its problems. And I think secretly, quite like the fact that there's somebody there who has a firm grip on power, however unpalatable he may be.
0: So, in a way, we've tolerated Russia's slide towards dictatorship.
3: Hugely. And I think we should also recognize that uh, in the days post uh, the 9 11 attacks on the United States, uh, in the West, suddenly Vladimir Putin became a great friend because he was somebody who signed up enthusiastically to the idea that there was a, uh, an, an Islamist threat to civilization, as he would put it, uh, and he was certainly in the forefront of uh, robust, if not outright brutal, uh, repression uh, of, of such um, threats. And the West, and particularly the United States, were privately quite pleased of it.
0: Con, do you think when dealing with Putin, though, if he is as you describe him, uh, someone who does not play by the normal rules of international diplomacy, if he's not someone who particularly cares about his global reputation, do things like excluding him from the G eight are they really going to have any kind of effect?
2: Yes, I do. I think I think um, part of the whole psyche is that he he, he loves being part of these uh, international shindigs. It, it basically means that he and Russia are being taken seriously, and to be placed on the naughty step would be. Yeah, quite a <clears throat> quite a significant reverse for, for, for Mr. Putin, and I think actually, if you look at the the way that the, the, this week has developed, the moment the Americans, in particular, as Ben said, were, we're sort of slightly irrelevant in this in this uh, issue, um, but the moment the Americans started talking about sanctions, about exclusion. Uh, you suddenly found Putin saying, oh, well, perhaps we can put the troops back to barracks um, and we can can scale down the exercises on the Ukrainian border. And he pulled back. So it's working. Um, But I think we we can go further. And I think we should really take very seriously this threat to exclude him from G8, because even if he does pull back now, the point is he has violated the uh, sovereignty of a country, and and he should be punished for that.
3: Yeah. Uh, well, I think is, uh, Con's absolutely right that the threat of economic action and international action against Vladimir Putin always has an effect. I think what has been most troubling in recent days has been that while the United States has shown itself willing to talk about and contemplate such action, you have seen across the European Union um, a striking degree of what looks like timidity and cowardice in the face of Moscow. The Germans who have huge economic involvement with Russia have been very hesitant to go down that path. Uh, Britain, which has been pursuing a foreign policy under this government of um, putting huge investment into a number of important bilateral relationships, whether it's with China or now with Moscow, um, has started talking about sanctions but we got a hint uh, earlier in the week that the government is very wary about putting any threat, any uh, uh, undermining in any way Russia's involvement in the city of London, Russian involvement in Britain. uh, And And money laundering. And well, (laughs) they wouldn't wouldn't recognize those words. But certainly, uh, the British government recognizes Russian financial involvement in London. And it has been striking that even though the powers are there and they are seen to be effective, Europe... Has been surprisingly deficient in terms of its willingness to deploy that power.
0: It always is, though, isn't it? I mean, it was the case during the breakup of Yugoslavia uh, that Europe talked a certain game about civilization and democracy and human rights, but actually, it was really America that mattered when it came to dealing with that crisis.
2: Yes, had it not been Richard Holbrooke, they'd probably still be fighting. Um, I think the the problem with the EU, um, which you know this this uh, newspapers said repeatedly, is the larger it gets. The, the less it works, and you'll see that with the uh, this emergency meeting of the EU foreign ministers. 28 states, 28 different agendas, and there is quite a, a serious rift now between um, those within Europe, and I, I would count Britain uh, amongst those, amongst them, uh, that, that want to confront Putin, to stand up to him, in whatever ways we can. And I think our room for action is limited, but even so, that's the the position they want to take. But a lot of European countries just don't want to get involved uh, in a fight with with Putin. And so, which means that nothing will happen. Um, And you've also got this bizarre situation with NATO, which is, you know, represents more European countries than anything else. Um, where they they just don't want even to draw up any plans for military action against the Russians. I mean, it's quite bizarre where we are on this crisis.
0: Uh, Both of you have written about how the crisis exposes the weakness of Britain and its sort of impotence on the world stage and how increasingly unimportant it is. And uh, is it that this particular crisis is simply too complicated for Britain to take a firm line on, or does it really reflect a longer trend? Is it similar to Syria? Is it it part of a post-Iraq withdrawal from the world? You can look
3: at it in two ways. You can say that uh, the government, in fact, is being quite honest about the limitations of Britain's power In uh, the second decade of the 21st century. uh, It recognizes that where Britain has influence it should deploy it, but at the same time it also realizes that we are economically bust, we are still rebuilding, we do not have the military resources that allow us to contemplate any kind of foreign engagement, particularly something as uh, massive as as any kind of involvement in in the Crimea would would, uh, uh, imply. Um, But what is telling though is there's a slight degree of political Political hesitation about using the power we do have. Britain does have power by dint of being London at the moment is the capital of the world, it is the place where all those um, oligarchs and all international wealth wants to come, wants to invest, wants to be. And that gives us a really useful lever against uh, Moscow and against other countries that deploy these kind of bully boy tactics. But of course because we are also adopting a posture of pleading for investment in Britain in order to get growth going and the economy going, whether it's China or Russia or India, our posture has been one of of the supplicant who is terrified of frightening off possible um, cash investment in the UK economy. And that, I think, leads to a certain timidity in our foreign policy.
0: It can also lead surely to moral compromise.
3: If, if we're Although desperate
0: I'm, to draw cash in from countries that are fundamentally dictatorships,
3: true. But I think you know, I think you're always in a dangerous area if you start sort of bringing morality into foreign policy. The fact is, you know, we all we have is interests, and what we should be looking to is our interests. And the question is, what is our interest in this case? And some people would say that the government has calculated that our interest is to um, reach an accommodation with Moscow and with Vladimir Putin, however awkward and complicated it may be.
0: Con, do you think the crisis has shown us that soft power is simply not as good as hard power when a real crisis emerges?
2: Well, that's a good point, Tim. I mean, in my view, DFID is not going to solve the crisis in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, Building and lots
0: and lots of wind of wind farms yeah. all over Ukraine. So I think to...
2: I think you know w- w- this is a wake-up call, and it should be a wake-up call to the government. Um, and as Ben says, we do we do have the means to to provide leadership, because one of the things I find rather uh, worrying is is the lack of leadership um, in the Western alliance. And you look back 20 years ago uh, to the period after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and Britain was very much a leading voice in steering and directing policy, um, the invasion of Kuwait, to get rid of Saddam Hussein and all that. Um, even in the Balkans, we, 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 were, we, we were somebody that people wanted to listen to. And you just feel that's gone. And I do blame the Syria vote very much. I think, I think there was an enormous erosion of the ability of the prime minister to, 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 to lead not just the country, but others, um, because he just didn't
0: seem to have that natural authority that people respect. But, but um, that, that was parliament's will, and of course the prime minister's, prime minister's mistake to put it to parliament.
2: It was a mistake to put it to Parliament, perhaps, but the point is he made such an awful argument in favour of action, it was ill-considered. Very few people uh, in the the, the British establishment, the military, actually supported what he was doing. And he found himself very isolated and, and it made him look very weak which is why um, there was this poll earlier this week by YouGov, um, a, a poll asking people who they thought were, was the strongest, uh, the strongest leaders of the current age, and the majority said it was Vladimir Putin, and David Cameron uh, came bottom. Yeah. And I think you know, that's
3: his own fault. But it actually may be, to David Cameron's credit, some might say, that unlike Tony Blair and possibly even Gordon Brown. It is not in his nature to rush in front of the cameras or to rush to Geneva or wherever talks are being held, to put himself in the front row for the group photograph of of leaders getting themselves involved in whatever international crisis crops up. He has not taken that kind of activist role um, that Tony Blair certainly took. Um, The problem with that is that he opens himself to the criticism which Khan makes and which I think is entirely justified, that for a front rank country, which is one of the world's largest economies and still has pretensions of being a serious player in the world of NATO, in the United Nations, a permanent member of the Security Council, that Britain carries a certain responsibility to be in the forefront of these debates about global order. And the thing that I have been struck by on the Ukraine crisis is the way in which Britain appears to have been Absent from much of the conversation, uh, in that you get the impression that Angela Merkel is in there and Barack Obama is in there, and for goodness' sake, even the French are in there. um, But yet, Britain, you don't get the sense of urgency from David Cameron and from William William Hague that they want to be leading the conversation and shaping the conversation.
0: Is there then a tension in modern British politics between, on the one hand, uh, we want leaders who are cool and rational, and we're a democracy, so we don't want to be dictated to, like the power mad Vladimir Putin. On the other hand, as this poll suggests, we do a part of us still admires and respects strength. So how do we how do we find some way of bringing those two things together, of both being a, a listening democracy of leaders who who don't rush into things, and on the other hand, somehow projecting a sense of leadership and of of force?
3: Well, my, my view is that it is very difficult to project strength and leadership on the international stage if on the basic measure of strength um, we have abdicated our responsibilities, and that's on in the military sphere. We have yeah. allowed our military capacity um, to be eroded to a point where we basically can't We couldn't fight a war if we wanted to. Um, uh, And the fact is that that, people know that. People can see that. People know that we are economically too poor to be able to pay for it. And that, in the end, uh, Vladimir Putin and all these people out there knows that if the chips are down, we're going to struggle to get to the party. Con? Yeah, I, I would add to that. It didn't have to be like this. I mean,
2: the the government keeps saying, you know, we're bust and we don't have the money for a strong military. Well, as I keep saying, then why give all this money to DFID? I mean, we could just as easily have have, uh, strengthened or maintained the strength of our armed forces rather than give money to
3: the ministry of blank checks as I call it but or I think- spend the money on tax credits or pensions or the NHS you know no. it's not just diffit I think there are no. huge areas of government spending which
2: but it, it plays into the soft power hard power argument um, but I also think that my, my, my other point about you know, why why is Britain in this mess is I think we don't have, the, the the current generation of political leaders do not have a strategic vision now you look at Margaret Thatcher and you and you look at Tony Blair, love him or hate him, but he, they, they actually had a vision of what they should be doing. I mean, Blair, particularly with the Chicago speech, you know, he believed in what he was doing. And, and because, because of that belief, it, it, it gave him the energy um, to get on the front foot and to steer the debate in the direction that he wanted it to, uh, to take. And that's, And I feel with the current generation, it is all just knee-jerk reactions. They don't have a clear view of Britain's place in the world or how to and having established what Britain's place in the world is, to then pursue that objective. And I think that, that is why they find themselves in
0: this mess. Con, just to close with, as you're a defence expert, uh, could you give us a sense of what's happened to our military in the last 10, 20 years, since the end of the Cold War? How reduced is it? Because I think people talk about this, but they might not have a, a real sense of the numbers and of what it actually looks like.
2: Well, I mean, first of all, I would say that the British military has done a brilliant job in the past decade. I mean, whatever you think about Iraq or Afghanistan, the military per se have actually done an exceedingly good job they get no credit for it. Mm. Um, the, 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 the really big problem we've got um, looking forward is because of the cuts, we will no longer be in a, in a position to do the kind of enduring expeditionary operations we've done. And the assumption is there will never be another Iraq, there will never be another Afghanistan. From now on it's drones and, and, and special forces and just having a very light footprint. A, a lot of ministers say to me, you know, Libya was a template, not a single British boot on the ground, not a single British casualty, mission accomplished. Well, you look at the mess of, of Libya today and the fact we did have boots on the ground, we had special forces guiding in the missiles and all the rest of it. Uh, yeah, the, 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 this is a great delusion and it's going to come back to us sooner or later, and I believe it will be sooner, particularly when you see what's going on in places like Crimea and we, we the, the, the 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 fallacy of this policy will be exposed.
0: Con Coughlin and Benedict Brogan, thank you both very much. For more opinion and commentary, you can find us at telegraph.co.uk.